Go ahead and grab your Bible with me, please. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we look at this series, Excel Still More, from the final two chapters in 1 Thessalonians. We're in a, a subset of that series as we're looking at four verses that define seven elements for a healthy spiritual family. I think you want to be part of a healthy church. And the scripture defines what would be true about us if we're going to be a healthy church. Verses 12 and 13, we've looked at so far in the last two weeks. But before we look at him, we're going to say our declaration. I got ahead of myself here for this reason. We're going to look at a third one today. And I can just tell you now, we need it, but few want to do it. You won't disagree with it, probably. You'll think, yeah, that'd be good for somebody else to do. This is going to, I'm I'm sure, going to challenge many of you to go, am I willing to trust the Lord and do what he says in this passage for the health of our life here together at CFC? All right, so because I know it's going to say something that's going to challenge us, I want us especially, again, to declare this together before we read the scripture. So with your Bible in hand, let's say this. This is God's word, his heart revealed. I humbly declare his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I will not lean on my own understanding, but incline my heart now to receive his word so that I may excel still more in walking in his... <laughs> filling the earth with his glory by walking in his truth and loving all people as he has loved me. My apologies. Just read it, Douglas. Just read it. So here's what it says, verse 12 and 13. We request of you, brethren, here are the first two things for spiritual health, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, who is he talking about in, these, in this verse? He's talking about the elders and a local church. Every local church, the scripture defines, ought to have elders who serve as under shepherds to the chief shepherd. We have that here at CFC, and this is why it's so important. Spiritual health in the church begins with involved elders diligently providing oversight, instruction, and example to a congregation who shows value and respect to the leaders through submission and obedience. It's not complicated. If a group of people called a church are going to be healthy, then those whom God has appointed by the Holy Spirit to serve as elders need to fulfill their role humbly under the headship of Jesus. And the congregation then under and unto the Lord Jesus submit and follow. When both play their part, we get spiritual health at CFC. And I am grateful that that's been true at CFC for as long as I've been here. It goes on to say then, live in peace with one another. And again, I am thrilled to say that really as a church, 
largely we live in peace with one another. I'm not sure how well that's working out in your home, but here's what we learned last week. The scripture says peace gets blown up in our lives and our relationships because of our desires. And I painted a picture for us. It's as if every single one of us have a selfish, demanding, out-of-control two-year-old living inside of us, demanding their way and pitching a fit. And as long as the two-year-old in me gets free reign and the two-year-old in you gets free reign, we'll never have peace. Peace, peaceful relationships are often only a a death to fleshly desire away. For me to say uh, no to the two-year-old in me, for you to say no to the two-year-old in you, to yield your body to the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, then the fruit of the Spirit will be peace. That's true in the church, true in the home as well. So now to verse 14, the third essential for healthy spiritual family. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Uh, These are the three words we're going to look at. Admonish the unruly. So let's define who are the unruly and what does it mean to admonish them. First, the unruly, simply the word means to be out of line. So the unruly are any of us who are not living in line with the word of God. All right, makes sense? Some of you may be using the New International Version, and the NIV says, admonish the idol. And that's because specifically in Thessalonica, you may remember, that though they were saying, hey, Jesus is coming back, we don't need to work. And he said, Jesus is coming back, and you need to work. And their idleness was out of line with the scriptures. Admonish the unruly. Can we have a a moment of honesty here? Who in here has ever lived an unruly life? All right, yep, yep. The rest of liars in the room, you, you are right now. All of us have lived lives out of line with the scripture, right? Yeah, it, it may not been for years, but in the last week, man, there was, there was unruly. In other words, out of line with the scripture. Where that continues in a community of believers where it's not like, oh man, I blew up, I'm sorry. Where unruliness out of line with the scripture continues, what is needed? What did the, what's the passage say? Verse 14, admonishment. So what's that mean? To admonish means to bring to mind. That's literally what admonishment means, to bring to mind. Now, let me be clear. It's not to bring to mind, Jason, man, you're a loser. (laughs) Even though he put his hand up as an unruly one. It's to bring to mind the word of God to Jason. So that then when Jason sees his life in in respect to the word of God, he would recognize I need to change. You see the difference? 
Admonishment, we think, is about picking on a person sometimes, and we're reluctant to. No, no. It's not bringing your sin to bear. It's bringing the word of God to bear into your life because the word of God then will do its work in your life. So it's to bring to mind, specifically it means, the need is for biblical truth to be spoken to the person, to the believer, not an unbeliever, but to the believer who is out of line. This is not what we do with unbelievers. We expect unbelievers to live out of line with the scripture. To them, we share the gospel. But to someone who has professed faith in Jesus and they're not living in line with the scriptures, then we bring the scriptures to bear. And that requires speaking. So quite frankly, this is not an a difficult instruction to understand. Speak the scriptures to those who profess Christ but aren't living in line. That's all it's saying. Here's the difficulty. Who's going to do it? Who's going to go to the person who is consistently living out of line with the scripture and speak the scriptures to them. Who's going to do it? Yeah, me. Right. Yes, yeah, what you're thinking. <laughs> me. You're going to do it. We'll give them a hug. You admonish them. The, the hardest thing about this passage is this. Not that we don't see the need for it, because we all recognize our unruliness. The hardest thing about this passage is I don't feel qualified to be able to actually admonish someone because you know what what well, you've had this conversation with yourself who am i i'm not perfect and so because we feel the reality of our own unruliness we go well let's get somebody else to do it So does the scripture identify who should admonish the unruly? Here's some direction for us. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, that's just another expression for unruly. In other words, if anyone is consistently living out of line with the scripture, you who are on staff, oh no, no, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. So now you quickly go, oh yeah, I agree. I'm just not spiritual enough, right? See, we use different expressions, but you know, I have a lot of room to grow myself. I agree. I do too. So what's it mean? You who are spiritual, it's not hard. You who have the spirit. So if you have been born again by trusting in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for your sins so that you can walk in newness of life, if you have trusted in Jesus, then the promise is the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you are <laughs> spiritual. Oh, but I don't feel very spiritual. So... <clears throat> We know admonishment needs to happen, but we don't 
feel qualified to do it, so we don't do it. And you know what happens when unruliness isn't admonished? Yeah, and unruliness just then, it multiplies in the person's life and in other people's lives. So we who are spiritual, we who have the Holy Spirit, have a responsibility. Now, I want to show you something from the, light, from the words of Jesus that will make a difference in how, if you have the Spirit and you admonish someone, it's going to make all the difference in how they will receive it or reject it. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is going to identify for us the manner in which we would do this that would reflect that we really are spiritual. But we have to undo something that we have probably begun to think because this passage is horribly misquoted. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 says this, do not judge so that you'll not be judged. And so we think, we hear, admonish the unruly. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I can't do that. You know, Jesus says, don't judge. The Bible says, don't judge. True? Does Jesus say, do not judge? He does. Period? <laughs> no. You, you realize how many wrong things you could come up with if you just took a couple words out of the scripture and didn't complete the sentence, didn't complete the context? I mean, do you know the Bible does say commit adultery? Well, uh, did you miss the do not right before it though? You understand? It does say commit adultery, but it does do not. It, it does say do not judge. Jesus did say that. But you know what else he said? Do not judge so that you'll not be judged. For in the way you judge, you'll be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So when Jesus says, don't judge, he is saying, don't judge unless you're prepared to be judged the way you judge. That measure, that standard, if I judge you according to my preferences and my opinions, then I need to be prepared to be judged by you according to your preferences and your opinions. So he's going, don't judge unless you're prepared to be judged by the same measure by which you judge other people. And there is a way that none of us want to be judged. And Jesus identifies it, all right? So true or false, Jesus said, yes, do not judge. But he didn't stop there. So don't fold to this pressure where people go, come on, you're a Christian. Even Jesus said, don't judge. Yeah, he said, don't judge by a measure. You're not prepared to be judged by. And here's the measure none of us want to be judged by. Verse 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? Ever had a speck in your eye? 
miserable, isn't it? It's just so little, but it's so irritating and it makes your eye water. He says, why do you look at the speck that every single one of us has had? Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the, the log? Now, how many of you have had a log in your eye? <laughs> uh, Jesus is exaggerating. You never actually had a log in your eye. Because if it was truly a log, it wouldn't fit. Correct? Okay, so he's painting an image. This is not a literal speck and a literal log, because a literal log wouldn't fit in your eye. He is saying, none of us want to be judged by someone who has a log in their eye, but is trying to remove the speck in someone else's eye. None of you want to be judged by that person, right? Yeah, you go, who are you? That's what Jesus is saying. Don't judge unless you're prepared to be judged by the way you judge. Same measure, same standard. And if your standard is you ignore your own stuff and just focus on other people's stuff, nobody wants to hear from you. So, does that mean we just avoid one another? He goes, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own. You can't say that. Nobody wants that person in their life. But his conclusion isn't just stay away. His conclusion is this. You hypocrite. You the one with the log in your eye looking at the speck in somebody else's eye. You hypocrite. First, first take the log out of your own eye and then, see there's no period there, and then you'll be able to clearly, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see what Jesus is saying? He's not saying don't judge, period. He's saying don't judge other people without first addressing your own stuff. When Brad Bigney was here for our marriage conference, he simply said, learn to see your sin first. Most and greatest. Learn to see your sin first. Your sin most, because it's right there. And greatest. And do what with it? Remove it. And let everybody else remove their own stuff. No. And then, then you can help. Do you see what Jesus is helping us understand when, when he says, you who are spiritual, you who have the spirit, restore a person, admonish? He's going, spiritual is this, that you are spiritually growing yourself. You are responding to the word of God yourself. So who should do it? Any believer who is personally growing spiritually, if you're not growing, don't admonish somebody else, but don't just stay there. Address 
what needs to be addressed in your life. And then you can help somebody else. So CFC, we've, we've acknowledged there's unruliness everywhere. We need one another, but we need one another not to be going around. Spec, 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 spec. We need one another to go, I am responding humbly to the word of God. I am saying yes. When the scripture speaks, it speaks to me first. When I see sin, I see mine first, most, and greatest. And then, then I am prepared to speak, to bring the word of God to where you are not in line. You see, if we don't do it with ourselves first, what's the scripture call us in verse 5? Hypocrites. But if we deal with ourselves first, then who we are, who are we? Galatians 6 1. Who are we? See, you are the spiritual. It doesn't require a certain amount of education, it doesn't require a certain role in the church. It requires a heart in you that humbly responds to the word of God first for you. And sometimes it's so easy to see how other people should obey. While we, I mean, can't you just see how your spouse needs to just get with it? You, you can see that, can't you? It's so obvious how they need to just get with it. And your kids, I mean, you know how they just need to get with it. But if, if I'm that father and I'm that husband that's not first dealing with my own heart, Jackie doesn't want to hear from me. My kids don't want to hear from me. They're thinking, hypocrite. Folks, understand this. This may be, this may challenge you very personally this morning. Someone else's unruly life may actually be being used by God to challenge you for you to deal with the Lord so that you're ready then to serve your brother. Don't miss. God may be using their unruliness for you to respond to him because sometimes we just go casual and and complacent about the unruliness in our own life. I doubt this would surprise you, but with, without doubt, the most challenging thing about my role is to, to every week bring the scriptures to you in a way that is not hypocritical, that it's, by God's grace, running its work through my heart and through my life first so that you're not sitting out there going, dude, why are you telling us to do stuff when you got serious hypocrisy going on in your life? That's, my, that's the greatest challenge of being a teacher of the word of God. If you heard that from Stephen when he talked about serving in children's ministry, what did he say? The most powerful thing has been the privilege of being 
an instrument in helping others because it first taught him. So maybe we're afraid to admonish because we recognize we need to do some work with God ourselves first and we don't want to, so then we just don't admonish. See how that works? And everybody loses in that. I'd feel hypocritical so I sp- if I speak up. So instead of responding to God, I shut up. <laughs> no. He doesn't say, stop being He doesn't say, don't speak up, hypocrite. He says, first, deal with your log so that then you can deal with the speck. I always have to deal with my heart first. So let's not shrink back in fear. Let's not shrink back in saying we're not spiritual enough. Let's start responding to the Lord because we are to be personally growing spiritually and we ought to go in the humility that I am a work in process as well. Not excusing my sin, but recognizing my sin and recognizing my own need to respond to the Lord. So we go with humility. You know, the last thing, the last thing I want to happen this morning is silent people who have not admonished to walk out of here going, and I'm going to shoot everybody who's out of line. Oh, we have to speak up. Admonish requires speaking the word. We do in humility, and the humility is my sin first, most, greatest, admitted and confessed to the Lord. Uh, And then this, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. In Jesus' image, what are we dealing with? The eye. So put away your chainsaw and your power drill. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? When you're dealing with the eye, it's like, man, this is, this is tender. When you're dealing with someone's unruliness, you go in humility and you go in gentleness. Because you're dealing with someone's heart, their own relationship with the Lord. I don't shrink back in fear. I don't go in guns blazing. You know what can happen? I've seen this. Uh, you've been afraid, you've been afraid, and so you're like, I'm going to do this. And then you charge in and blow everybody up. So humbly respond to the Lord, and then gently, humbly engage them. Admonish the unruly. And do so, the scripture says, with a loving progression. Do so with a loving progression. A progression that that Jesus teaches us. And this may be new to some of you. Some of you, you'll you'll know this forward and backward. I'm honored to be able to say when I came to the chapel, I didn't know this loving progression. I learned it here. As a member of this church long before I came on staff, 
I learned this loving progression as a member. I didn't see it in the church I grew up in, and I'm certain it wasn't because there weren't unruly people in our church. Since they didn't follow what Jesus said. So if this is new to you, you may go, whoa, this seems like wildly crazy stuff. It's Jesus' prescription for a loving progression for how we humbly, gently admonish the unruly. Matthew 18. He has said in chapter 16 he's going to build his church. Now in chapter 18 he says this. If your brother sins... In other words, he's out of line. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Honor him. Respect him. You don't broadcast it. You don't tweet it. You don't post it. You don't talk to four other people about it. Can I tell you? Save yourself the phone call. Hey, Doug, I have this friend, and they're not living in line with Scripture. I'm wondering, I'm not sure really what to do. I can save you the phone call. Go to them in private. Having first what? Yeah, looked at your own heart. Responded to the Lord, looked at your own heart, been responsive to the Lord yourself. And then you go humbly, gently, privately in order that you hope they will listen. Not just hear your words, They will hear your heart. They will hear the heart of God. And the word of God brought to bear will bring about an admission, a confession, and a turning. An admission and a confession and a turning. That's the goal. That's what it means when he says, and if he listens. If he admits, I'm wrong. The scripture's right. I confess that and I turn from it. Then you've won. Your brother, not an argument. You've won your brother. You've saved them from the destruction of sin. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. You're not going to gang up on them. You're going to simply confirm, hey, this is not a disagreement between two believers. This is really a case where a brother is in sin and... uh, you're confirming. It's simply like this. Is it really true that uh, the scripture says, don't get drunk, but, but you are drinking heavily every night? That the scripture says, uh, honor the marriage bed, but Y'all are not married and living together and sexually involved. It's simply saying, are the facts accurate that you are out of line? Drunkenness, adultery, that the facts are that even though your spouse has said, please don't, you're looking at pornography. Is that that what's true? You're confirming facts. You're not going on hearsay. You're asking them, is this what's true going on in light of what the scripture says? It's not a he said versus she, she said. It's a 
two or three witnesses confirming facts. In order that with the appeal of two or three, there would be a listening, an admitting, a confessing, and a turning. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. It's a, a telling it to the church. And we'll explain why in a moment. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, it's like Jesus can't even imagine that, though it happens, then let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. No longer associate with them as a brother. So the loving progression, where there's unruliness, I deal with my own heart first. And then I humbly go in gentleness, privately first, right? That's the loving progression. We always start privately. Never going to spread sin unnecessarily. Really, don't, you don't need to talk to three people about it. If, if you know such, go to them privately. You don't need to tell your whole family group about it. Go to them privately. Love them enough to go to them privately. With the hope that hearing the word of God, hearing your love, they will admit, confess, and turn. If they don't, go two or three to confirm the facts. If they don't listen to the two or three, if they won't confess, then you tell it to the church. I understand. When we say tell it to the church, we're not punishing by telling it to the church. We're not shaming to tell it to the church. Watch this. We are telling it to the church, and at CFC, that specifically means those who have committed to membership at Christian Family Chapel. We tell it to the church so that the church will do what the individual did privately and what the two or three did as witnesses. We tell it to the church so that the church will join the rescue. See, that's dramatically different. Uh, and I hope this will help. Like I said, I'd never seen this before I came to the chapel. And I wouldn't staff. And I was like, wow, this is so clear in the scriptures. How have we not done this? But when you start seeing it happen, here was one of my questions. Especially in a church like the chapel. I, I, how does telling someone's sin to the church is that spread across six services and a bunch of you don't know the individual, how is that serving the individual? And here's what I concluded. When a child goes missing, the mother, the father, immediately start looking, right? And if they can't find quickly, then they engage Friends, family, as fast as they can, please start looking. And when those who already know have sought to rescue and can't, then what do we do in Florida? 
there's an amber alert. In other words, the information is given to hundreds of thousands of people who don't know the child, have never met the child, but can be involved in the potential rescue because what's true is this. It doesn't have to be my child. I can just act like I would if it was my child, which is a biblical principle. Hebrews 13 says, remember those in prison as though in prison yourselves. See, it changes everything when you make something personal. So when we tell it to the church, I don't want you to dismiss it and go, oh, I don't know the person. The goal is to tell it to the church so that you, because they're a brother or sister in Christ, you would do for them as if it was your spouse or your child or your best friend. You would plead with them to turn, to listen, to turn from their sin because you believe in the destructiveness of sin. You know that sin blows up marriages and blows up families and and kids live with that for the rest of their lives. And, And so you want to do everything you can to plead with them as though it was your best friend, even though you had never met him. I'm grateful, CFC, that by those who have been here, we have had to tell their situation to the church. They have, by their own testimony, told me, man, CFC, I heard from a whole bunch of people I had never met, and they pled with me. They told me their own stories. It's, it's, it's not cruel. It's not punishment. It's not shame. It's, it's all out loving rescue. That's what Jesus is unfolding here. And he says, man, if, if the church, they won't even listen to the church, then stop associating as a brother. You know what Jesus assumes? Jesus assumes that there's relationship here. That the, that the stopping associating would be such a loss to a person that there would be a godly sorrow that would lead to repentance. And if I can say, honestly, a grieving for the church in Jacksonville, as exciting as saturated is, a grieving of the church in Jacksonville is this. If we tell it to a church and a person does not respond and we say, we no longer associate, you just go down the street and attend another church they don't care because you need to know this if you're new we genuinely practice practice this at the chapel and not because we're trying to be cruel someone might say how could you hate your members so much to which I would say how could you call warning someone that they are in for destruction ahead, how could you call warning them, hating them? To ignore a drowning person because it might be hard, because it might be awkward, to ignore a drowning person and let them drown is unloving. Not seeking to help them. So it assumes that there's fellowship. I would, I would encourage you, if, if you're a, attending CFC but on the fringe, 
build relationship so that in a time of need of potential unruliness, those relationships would love you well in the way that you need to be loved. And a time where it would be hard to receive it, no doubt, but that you would need the type of love that would happen. Don't stay on the fringe. You see, the whole goal all along, make sure you understand this, is not punishment, it's not shame, it's to bring the person to repentance. And we are begging that they will come to repentance because we believe sin destroys and repentance will spare them the destruction that sin brings. So admonish, humbly, gently pursue, first privately, then a few, then it's the elder's responsibility to then tell it to the church, but then it's the church's responsibility to pursue them. And then it's the elder's responsibility to say, they're not responding, don't associate any longer. But then it's the congregation's responsibility to not associate any longer. You see? You see how the roles fit together there? So that unruliness would not multiply. But sometimes we think we're smarter than God. And we go, ah, that's so mean, so cruel. I think we should just love them and not remove them. Here is a case study of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says this. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you. And immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Corinth was a, a, a city known for sexual immorality. But what's going on is that in the church, there is a relationship such that even Corinthians go, whoa. And it's in the church. You know what should be done. But watch. Watch. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Private, two to three, tell it to the church. And if they don't listen, remove them. But they didn't do that. Why not? Arrogance. We, we know better than what God knows. We're more loving than that. More loving than God? We're more gracious than that. More gracious than Jesus? It's impossible. I admit, all, every level of, of admonishment is hard. It takes courage, humility, and gentleness. Anything else will send us down a different path. And here's the danger. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? In other words, not only are you not doing what's loving for the individual, you are putting the whole lump, the whole church at risk. Because sin left unadmonished multiplies in the person and in the body. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. Then you'd have to go out of the world. In other words, we sometimes get it so backwards. 
As Christians, we go, oh, we can't associate with unbelievers who act like unbelievers. Paul's going, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about unbelievers acting like unbelievers. I expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers. Associate with them. But I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Break the relationship with the professing believer who refuses to listen, not to punish them, but to rescue them and protect the body. For what I have to do with judging outsiders, do you not judge those who are within the church? So there it is. We do judge. Humbly, according to the word of God, those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among the one who is professing but out of line. It's the fullest expression of admonishment. You are seeking to protect them and to protect the purity of the church. CFC, can I have your eyes, please? It's not easy. But let's not be silent in our fear. But nor let's be arrogant in our speaking. Let's find what Jesus defined as humble, gentle, responsiveness, to God ourselves first and then a loving commitment to pursue others because we all are going to need that person in some form at some point in our lives because unruliness can be true for any of us at any time. We're going to in a moment lay our hands on two new elders who will serve as under shepherds in this flock and I want to invite them to, to start coming up right now but before they we do that uh, I want us to remember this as we admonish the unruly now may the God of peace himself sanctify you how much? entirely may your soul excuse me, in your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the promise? Faithful is he who has called us and he also will bring it to pass. I believe it. That is true. He will, he will protect his body as we will do it. All right, let me have these guys come on up here. These are our current elders and two men who are, we believe, appointed by the Holy Spirit to serve as under-shepherds with our current elders. This is John Adams, his wife, Andy, Eric Foster, his wife, Heather. Uh, two weeks ago, we presented them to you, believing the Holy Spirit set them apart. We continue to believe that. And so this morning, our current elders...
They're going to lay hands on them and pray for them. Uh, not just a symbolic moment, a, a genuine anointing of the Lord upon these men to serve under Jesus as our shepherds. So, I'm going to ask you two men again, if you would, to your knees and as your wives stand beside you, because you will need them to stand beside you often in the, the days ahead. May the Lord speak to you again from this passage. Peter's charge to you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to this flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Would you stand together over in South as well? Would you stand as... Jeff Curry, uh, praise, we lay hands on these guys. Dear Father, thank you so much for the day that you have given us and, Lord, for bringing us your word this morning. Lord, we're grateful that you have brought John and Andy and Eric and Heather to this role of serving your body here at CFC. We ask for you to grant Eric and John wisdom as they serve under you as shepherds and protectors. Father, we pray that you would give them joy in serving both in easy and difficult circumstances. We ask that you would give them stamina to stay the course and do all that you would have them to do. We ask, Father, that you would give them humility that comes from you. We ask for your protection over them and their fam families. Lord, we are grateful for Jesus, our chief shepherd, and pray that they and the rest of the elders, Lord, would submit to him in all things. In Christ's name, amen. So the scripture declares that spiritual health at Christian Family Chapel begins with elders who will give oversight, instruction, and be an example in a congregation who respects and values their leadership under his leadership. So very practically, if you don't know these gentlemen, and you're a member at CFC, you ought to take a couple minutes today as they go out into the courtyard and find out who the shepherds of your souls are, uh, that we would have relationship because we never know when we may need these men to do what God has called them to do for our great protection and the purity of this body. So take a few minutes, if you would, today and introduce yourself to these guys. God bless. Thank you for being here.